this week on yeah. Making Contact. Make some noise! Yeah! Make some noise if your rent has gone down. Yeah. California's fight over rent control. I want to share with you some of the real rent increases that I've heard straight from the mouths of tenants as I've been collecting signatures over the last few months. $100 every three months over the last two years. Seniors on a fixed income getting hit with a $350 a month increase. $1,000 all at once, plus no pets allowed any longer. That's an eviction notice. The stage is set for a political battle between two polar worldviews. Is housing a human right? or is real estate an investment commodity? And where on that continuum is California's common ground? The Affordable Housing Act is a proposed state ballot initiative that if approved, would once again allow local governments to create their own rent control laws. On this episode of Making Contact, we'll go to one of many smaller cities in California where rents can double overnight. And later in the show, we'll go next door to the city of Los Angeles we're making contact contributor Carla Green looks at the city's policies affecting homeless encampments and their residents. But first we go to the city of Glendale, California, where a local tenants organization is working to qualify a city ballot measure that would cap rent increases at 4% a year. Hello, Hello. I am a renter. I am part of the Glendale Tenants Union. I am living in constant anxiety. I'm on a month-to-month -month rental agreement, which can be raised as much as my landlord would like with only a few months' notice. The bulk of my paycheck goes towards my rent, and if it is unreasonably raised, I am going to need to leave Glendale, where I have built a life. My name is Vanessa Sermeno, and I'm a preschool teacher, full-time. Vanessa had not been living in constant anxiety. but. Yeah, I always, it was always in the back of my mind, like, it could happen. It just didn't happen. <laughs> so I felt really lucky. I was like, okay, another year went by without a rent increase. <laughs> For four years, Vanessa and her two daughters lived comfortably in their Glendale apartment until this past February. My daughter opened the mail to my oldest daughter, and she sent me a text while I was still at work. She um, sent, took a picture of the letter and texted me, it's like, mom, they're increasing our rent. And I was just, I, when I saw the letter, the, you know, the picture, I was like, I just couldn't believe like how much they increased it by. And I just was like, oh my God. Vanessa had been paying $1,100 a month. Her new rent would be $2,150, $1,050 more than what she had been paying. At 60 days. <laughs> to either stay or give a notice to move. The city of Glendale has what's called a just cause eviction law. It says that a landlord has to give a tenant 60 days notice and cite at least one of 12 reasons to legally evict them. The concern for renters like Vanessa is that currently there is no limit to the amount a tenant's rent can be raised. Nairi Kachikin. Council members, my name is Nairi Khachikian. I'm a member um, and volunteer with Glendale Tenants Union. I want to share with you some of the real rent increases that I've heard straight from the mouths of tenants as I've been collecting signatures over the last few months. $100 every three months over the last two years. 
Seniors on a fixed income getting hit with a $350 a month increase. $500 increased over three years. $1,000 all at once, plus no pets allowed any longer. That's an eviction notice. $1,200 all at once. That's an eviction notice. The Glendale Tenants Union formed in 2017 after some of their members caught wind of steep rent increases. So they decided to get a petition together. It was pretty grassroots. My name is Oganesh John Bagjian, and uh, I'm retired. John helped collect signatures in 2017 to put a rent stabilization measure on the local ballot. And we uh, laid out uh, ordinance uh, in a couple months. We didn't have the lawyers at that time. And um, we started uh, as of uh, March and ended up September, six months. We fought good fight and we, we collected uh, more than 11,000 votes. But the city didn't accept it because of the, some technicality. The technicalities John's referring to were textual errors and, more seriously, alterations to the signature packets. A statement from the Glendale City Clerk's Office described sections which had been pasted and glued on top of another page and sections that had been whited out and filled in again. But John and his colleagues stood by the legitimacy of the signatures and sought help from state officials by personally delivering a letter to them. It says, Dear Sir or Madam, persons signs underneath this letter expressing their huge concern in the city of Glendale, California. The issue is, as we talk, especially with Antonio Portantino, he said that if the city councillors, they want it, the majority, let's say three out of five, they could have automatically put it on the ballot. If those people are real people which we presented, they wouldn't accept it. That's why they started the second one. Hopefully, we'll succeed in this one. Earlier this year, the Glendale City Council proposed an amendment to its current eviction law and called it the right to lease. It would have required landlords to offer tenants a one-year lease with the option to renew for a second year and landlords would continue to set rental prices and any increases. The measure proved to be unpopular with renters and landlords alike, so the city council took no further action on it. Members of the Glendale City Council and the mayor were unavailable for comment. Sign a petition for rent control in Glendale? From here. Okay, thank you. Nairi Kashikian spends Friday afternoons at the Glendale Fashion Center. I do get a lot of people thanking me, which is really nice to hear. Thank you for what you're doing. And I'm like, thank you. Would you like to volunteer? <laughs> Sign a petition for rent control in Glendale. I was here last Friday, 3 to 5 as well. I got 25 signatures in two hours, which is really good for, like, non-mobile signature canvassing. A lot of people walk by, think about it, and then turn around and come back. And they go, oh, yeah, rent control. Yes, I do care about that. Sign a petition for rent control in Glendale? Sure. Yeah? You guys live in Glendale? Are you registered to vote here? Yes. All right, cool. So we're collecting signatures to get this on the ballot. I went to meet with some other Glendale renters, a couple and a few of their neighbors in their 62-unit apartment complex, the Windsor Villas. Are you John? Oh, yes. Hi. Yes. Well, this is a big issue that everyone, yeah, it affects a lot of people here. Is everyone here? But there weren't just a few neighbors. John Robinson and Vanessa Royal Robinson's apartment was filled with people, sitting on couches and folding chairs, standing shoulder to shoulder in the dining room, 
and along the entryway. Maybe half the tenants in the building. We just got a notification this Thursday about um, all of our rents spiking over like 800, some even $1,000. People were concerned. And there seemed to be an urgency coming from the group to tell their stories. This isn't just Glendale, it's all of Los Angeles. We would love to see a change in rent control so people can actually have a life. You plan for the future and then something like this happens, now everything is upside down and you have two months to figure it out. I want to tell you, actually this summer during vacation from school, I'm planning to go visit my mother. I haven't seen her 22 years and now I have to cancel this because I don't know where I have to live because I don't have money to pay for my apartment. And I'm thinking it's such a disrespect to the people uh, who doesn't have a high income for low-income people, and it's kind of cruelest even. I can say it's not human, you know, to stuff like that to the people who can really afford. There is no human rights here. Before when they bought this building, they knew what the cost of the building is and how much rent it's generating. So they already had a heads up how much rent they're collecting here. And just for their profit, they're kicking 60 families out on the street, basically. In addition to the rent increase, a few tenants also described experiences with pests or mold in their apartments. We have a time limit. We have until September 1st, and they're making us either sign a lease where we have to like sign for a whole year, or um, we go month to month, but either way, we're going to be paying the exact same price as a remodeled new luxury little apartment unit, but we'll be still living with the problems like termites, mice, mold, dust, cockroaches. cockroaches. According to the lease, the new amount for a one bedroom is $2,200. And this is where I live. Hi, sweetie. Hold on. Hi, come on in. One tenant invited me to look at an accumulation of termite droppings on her windowsill. And I wipe it every other day. Back in Vanessa and John's apartment, they opened a cupboard to reveal two carcasses in a cocktail glass. Um, there, there's like a pest problem, and so sometimes these bugs will crawl into our glasses and just die. <laughs> we also like One of the owners of the Windsor Villas, Parker Champion, provided a statement over the phone to explain the sharp rise in rent. In Mr. Champion's words, his company had recently purchased the property. The previous owner passed away several years earlier, and the property wasn't achieving market rent. And because his company, Champion Glendale LLC, is looking to own long-term, so they want to be able to compete with other projects in the area. When asked about tenant complaints regarding termites, cockroaches, and mold, Parker Champion said that he was not aware of requests regarding pests and that if there are those problems, they were there from the previous owner before his company purchased the property. And he added that they're trying to make the building as habitable of a living situation as possible. Representatives from the building's property manager, Moss & Company, were unavailable for comment. In April, the ACLU of Southern California hosted a debate between supporters and opponents of rent control and of the Glendale Tenant Union's proposed rent ordinance. Some of the most vocal members in the audience were mom-and-pop landlords like this woman, who says she carries a million-dollar mortgage. I'm a good landlord. I take care of my apartment building. 
and I don't raise the rents like everybody does, but what you guys are doing is going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt these other landlords that own few or the corporations. I just got a letter from the Glendale Water and Power telling me that they're going to raise the water bill, the garbage bill. I had a couple of years ago, I had a tenant that moved in within a month. They did not pay the rent. Among the debate panelists were Mike Van Gorder from the Tenants Union and Frank Broccolo, an attorney specializing in commercial litigation. I think it's just a simple case of the law of supply and demand where there's low supply and a very high demand. So then we have to look at different types of solutions. Um, there's a lot of other solutions besides rent control. One is to, again, to free up property development companies and make it easier for them to build housing. Um, you can give them zoning variances. You can say, well, you can build higher, you can have less parking spaces if you devote more of your units to be affordable. There's, there's also sort of a bargaining that you can do with property development companies to increase affordable housing. You can increase housing vouchers. Mike Van Gorder. I also wanted to come back uh, at the idea of bargaining for affordable units in exchange for developers. The best example of the problem with that uh, is the Onyx. Um, and I believe there's something to the tune of 200 or so units that have just opened up there. The city government went to uh, the people who were talking about building the Onyx beforehand and they said, all right, well, we want you to uh, provide affordable units and then we'll help you. We'll, we'll, we'll cut you a, a six to seven figure boost to help you help you over that finish line. Uh, but you got to help us out with these affordable units. They made eight. They opened up eight units that were affordable you know, below the market rate, such as it is. Uh, and they put those out to a raffle, and that raffle got 7,000 applicants. So we're distilling down people's odds of an equitable living situation to just luck. Remember Vanessa Sermeno? Single mom, two daughters, hit with a $1,000 rent increase by her mom and pop landlord? Well, Vanessa decided to stay mostly because she didn't want to pull her two daughters out of school. Her eldest was a senior in high school at the time. And Vanessa's picked up a couple of extra jobs to make ends meet, but she says she's not sure how long that'll last. I love where I live. I love my apartment. It feels more like a home than an apartment. But yeah, I just it's just still, I still have that ugly feeling. It's like, am I going to see him? Is he going to be there working on the apartment until late? It's like, you never, I just never know, you know? It's not a good feeling. Los Angeles police officers have in many ways become the de facto first responders to the county's homelessness crisis. In 2018, it's estimated that 53,000 homeless people live in the county of Los Angeles. But activists say that using police to deal with homelessness has only further entrenched the problem by criminalizing the very fact of being homeless. Making Contact's Carla Green reports. Tiffany Jones lives with her wife in Koreatown, a busy neighborhood near downtown Los Angeles. They live with a half dozen other people in an elaborate structure of tents and tarps they've built. There's a guest room, a lounge, a shower room, and the bedroom Joan shares with her wife. 
There are lots of things that make living on the street difficult, Joan says. But there's one that stands out in particular. They're bullying us. They're harassing. And then it's like, when does it become harassment for us from the police? No, for real. It's like, when? Over the two years Jones and her wife have lived in that encampment, time and again, she says, they've had to rebuild everything. Start from scratch. Is that what they really do is they come over here and they harass the homeless. What they do is they rob us. Police do. They devastate us. Jones is talking about regular sweeps the city does of homeless encampments. And these sweeps are actually a point of contention between the city and much of Los Angeles's homeless population. Because the city and the homeless have widely diverging stories of what actually happens. Here is what Jones says. They'll pull us out the tent and they will throw everything away. Our tarps, tents, our clothes, money, it does not matter. We don't have a choice on what we want. We can't keep anything. Yeah. They pull up with a big trash truck and they just start devastating they give all you of five us. Minutes to grab everything. The city tells a different story. We saw it as a meantime measure for how do we increase the safety of people residing within our encampments, as well as the broader uh, public health issues that happen in our encampment when we don't always have access. This is Elisa Orduña, then Homelessness Policy Director for the mayor. She's recently started a new job as Senior Advisor on Homelessness for the city of Santa Monica. Our public sidewalks have to be accessible by all citizens, including people in wheelchairs. And when someone has a tent that's covering up the sidewalk or they have a lot of belongings, you have to think about school children, where we get complaints from parents about kids having to walk into the street to walk around an encampment that's putting those children at risk. And so there has to be this balance. There's been an ongoing struggle over what the city is allowed to do during these cleanup sweeps. So... This is General Dogon, an activist with the Los Angeles Community Action Network, or LA CAN, a homeless advocacy group based in Skid Row. LA CAN has been the plaintiff in a number of lawsuits against the city. So the city of Los Angeles um, uh, was, was hit with a TRO, temporary restraining order, right? Tell it, forbidding them from taking homeless people's property. Dogon is talking about one of a string of these lawsuits that has restricted the city's behavior with the homeless population, in particular with respect to their personal property. The lawsuits have helped shape the piece of legislation that governs sweeps of homeless encampments. City Ordinance 5611. 5611 sets out what, exactly, the city is allowed to do during encampment sweeps. For example, the city is allowed to take and then store any property that wouldn't fit inside a standard trash bin. Officials have to give people a slip, telling them where they can pick up their belongings. Some people living in encampments report police or sanitation workers throwing trash bags at them during sweeps. If it can fit in the bag, they can keep it. But the city is not supposed to throw anything away, unless it's a quote-unquote bulky item, like a couch, contraband or evidence of a crime, or quote, an immediate threat to the health and safety of the public. But over a dozen people interviewed at four different encampments tell stories that suggest the city may not always be following these rules. At one sprawling encampment under the 101 Alvarado Street overpass, tents and tarps hug the walls of the tunnel, just feet from the relentless flow of speeding cars. In a dusty patch of earth near the intersection, there's a large pile of trash, clothing, and unidentifiable junk. David Garcia, who lives at the encampment, says on the most recent sweep, he lost everything. His tent and clothing, pain medication, even Christmas presents for his kids. They told me if I go inside my tent, I'll come out wearing one of these, and they flashed a pair of handcuffs at me. And I started laughing like it was a joke. So, Just a couple blocks away, at a different encampment, 
a man named Jacob sits on a curb, surrounded by open suitcases filled with clothing. He's recovering from an encampment sweep. Jacob was reluctant to be interviewed. He had a bad headache. But he said that when the police came, he had to bargain with them. They told him he had to give up half his suitcases or his two bikes. He chose to keep both bikes, so they took three of his suitcases, throwing them into a garbage truck directly in front of him. A social worker came afterwards, he said, and when he told them what had happened, the social worker said, they're not supposed to do that. The worker gave Jacob a business card, told him to call and report the incident. He said he might. When I asked about what happened to Jacob, Ordunia, formerly of the mayor's office, said sometimes city officials might need to dispose of people's things, but they shouldn't be throwing them away for no reason. We do have to clean the streets because that's that's a reality of living on the streets, and we want to protect the health and safety of those that are living on our streets. Almost two years ago, Ordunia came up with an idea that would help the LAPD deal with its growing involvement in Los Angeles' homelessness crisis, HOPE Teams. They're made up of homeless outreach workers, sanitation workers, and police officers. The idea was that police officers would receive special training on the laws governing homelessness, like Ordinance 5611, and how to deal with the homeless population. When the program first started, it was pitched as cops acting like social workers. Our LAPD officers are out there 24 hours a day, so they've already been engaging with people experiencing homelessness and trying to connect them to services. Ordunia says the HOPE teams, those special teams of police, social workers, and sanitation workers, they've helped the city to reach more people. The city is looking to expand the program. Our HOPE teams go into encampments that many outreach workers don't feel safe going into. But some advocates dispute the notion that social workers need a police escort. I think that's just ridiculous. This is Ace Catano, a public defender and Los Angeles-based activist. I've worked in criminal defense for six years. I've gone into all manner of encampments, uh, SROs, you know, drug houses, whatever, in a suit and tie. And I've never felt threatened, even once. And General Dogon from LA Can says police presence might actually hinder outreach workers' ability to connect with the homeless population. First of all, you're scaring the hell out of people because there's nobody want to talk to you with you walking up on there with 10 police. The goal should be to remove police from homeless outreach entirely, Dogon says, not ask police to act like social workers. You don't need 10 police to do outreach. Police, we already said, is not social workers, right? People ain't even, don't even accept good to, to that, that many police, especially folks with mental disabilities. We know the hell they ain't finna, you know, identify. The people that most needed the housing, you're not even going to be able to approach them with 10 cops. Plus, Catano, the public defender, says he's seen firsthand how police involvement in homeless outreach can further entrench homelessness. I see it coming in and out of court, you're dealing with uh, things that, you know, in a well-off person wouldn't even be ticketed, things like being in the park after hours, being, you know, having an open container, and people get arrested for these things. Uh, They get bail set because they have a history, they probably have failures to appear uh, due to lack of funds, lack of transportation, etc. And as a result, wind up spending a disproportionate amount of time in jail on these minor offenses. Catano's experience is borne out by the facts. A recent analysis from a UCLA research project called Million Dollar Hoods found that as overall arrests in Los Angeles have gone down, arrests of the homeless population have increased. Here's UCLA researcher Danielle Dupuy. You know, it's like really startling that I think that about 19.6 percent 
of the arrests in the first half of 2017 were of houseless people. Um, that's like about one in every five arrests, whereas, you know, houseless people, according to the last homeless count, make up less than a, a 1% of the city's total population. So that inequity is just huge. And Dupuis said, looking at the criminal charges homeless people face paints a vivid picture of how homelessness and poverty are being criminalized. The top five charges that we found were a failure to appear, possession of a controlled substance, uh, supervision or parole, probation violation, petty thefts, and trespassing. And these charges accounted for over 50% of the houseless arrests in the first half of 2017. So the majority of arrests of houseless persons are for these types of nonviolent um, crimes and really are reflective more of the condition of poverty. Even the LAPD's own statistics found that in the first two quarters of 2017, Hope teams helped place just under 300 people in some form of housing, but arrested more than double that number, 647 people, about a third of the LAPD's arrest of homeless people citywide during that time. LAPD Homeless Coordinator Commander Dominic Choi said arrest numbers may have actually been even higher than that. He was working on reanalyzing the data to release arrest numbers that he said would be more inclusive. And Choi said, of course police are arresting people when they go to encampments. That's their job to enforce. Well, uh, the comment that there's more enforcement because LAPD's on the scene, of course, because if there's no officers on the scene, there'd be no enforcement, right? But that didn't mean he would stop sending out teams to homeless encampments, Troy said. But um, I'm not going to ask my officers to stop because it's human nature. If somebody's asking for help and they can provide it, you know, they, they will. Numbers from the L.A. Homeless Services Authority, or LASA, show that the HOPE teams may actually be connecting more people with services than the LAPD numbers reflect. Over roughly the same period as the LAPD reports, LASA said it hoped to place about 160 people in some form of housing. But activists argue that could happen if LASA workers went out alone, without police. And a recent study by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty found that relying on police as a response to homeless encampments is both expensive and ineffective. Here is Executive Director Maria Foscarinis. And it will not solve the problem. These sweeps mean that people can lose hard-to-replace documents and identification that they need to get into housing, Foscarini says. The cops being there makes it more likely that people will get arrested, and having an arrest record can also make it harder to get into housing. Plus, Foscarini says it's expensive to send cops out on a regular basis. And she says the evidence suggests that it doesn't help. Um, it will not uh, eliminate the encampment and it will make life worse for the people who are living in it. But LASA Associate Director Victor Hinderleiter says any way you look at it, it's still better to have hope training than none at all. Police are going to have interactions with people experiencing homelessness regardless, whether there is a HOPE project or there isn't. Again, that's the first call that concerned community members, business owners, homeowners are going to make is to LAPD because often it's hard to know where else to turn. Like I said at the beginning, I, I don't think that we can arrest our way out of homelessness. I don't think we can enforce our way out of homelessness. So, yeah, I would obviously like to see a lower number of arrests, a lower number of citations. But again, I, I do believe that it is lower than it would be otherwise. Yeah. 
back at the Koreatown encampment where Jones lives. She says that the street she lives on is always filled with trash. All the trash, if you look at the corners, is piled up. Feces, urine, um, needles, all kind of stuff. And it stays like that for months at a time. Yeah. And then they do this cleanup, and it's a joke. It's a joke because all they do is that what they really do is they come over here and they harass the homeless. One time, she said, she stood out on the street waiting for a garbage truck to come by so she could flag it down and ask them to pick up the trash. So I stood out there. I had stood out there for a whole week and asked the man for a whole week, hey, nicely, can you guys please pick this trash? No. It's like, why can't they pick the trash up? Mm -hmm. No, really, why can't they? Are they not allowed to because it's not a scheduled stop? Mm -hmm. Or do they not give a For Making Contact, it gotta be. I'm Carla Green in Los Angeles. And that wraps up this edition of Making Contact. Thanks to this week's contributor, Carla Green. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Redman, Audience Engagement Director Sabine Blazin, Staff Producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani. Development Coordinator is Vera Tykolsker. And I'm this week's host and producer, Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.